hell. It used to be a common theme on Sunday mornings. Preachers warned that disobedience to God's moral standards meant death, and the ultimate expression of this death was eternal separation from God in hell. But now we are too sophisticated to believe in hell. College students laugh over the contradiction of a supposed place that is described as outer darkness and also as fire that will not be quenched. Progressive religionists tell us that hell was a barbaric, false idea that can be cast aside with other similar false notions as the boogeyman, wicked witches, and switches delivered to bad boys and girls by Santa at Christmas. But in the midst of all this 21st century self-assurance, there remain nagging questions about justice. As our Bible teacher, Dave Wurtzen, turns our attention to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, we come face to face with statements like, Fear God and give Him glory because His righteous judgment has come. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day and night for those who worship the beast and his image. How can God speak of love in such harsh terms? Let's join Dave as he leads us into a discussion of God's justice by getting us to face the question of justice for Hitler, who murdered over six million Jews, a million and a half of whom were children. One and a half million little Jewish boys and girls were put in the incinerators of Auschwitz and Dachau and the other concentration camps. I've shared with you in the past how I've been in Israel and one of the most moving museums at Yad Vashem in remembrance of the Holocaust victims is to go in to this hall of mirrors. It's all black with just candles that are multiplied again and again and again. And it represents, gives you some feel for the one and a half million babies and little children that were killed during the horrible Holocaust. And you hear the names of these Jewish children being read out unceasingly, day in and day out. What did Hitler do while they were burning those children? Well, he listened to classical music. He made love to his mistress. He did nothing. Some of you had buddies. Some of our World War II generation had buddies that die on the beaches of Omaha. And, and what did Hitler do while the Normandy invasion was taking place? He was actually asleep. In fact, one of the reasons that his soldiers were defeated is that his generals were afraid to wake him up to give the orders to bring in the major panzer divisions that were in readiness, but they never attacked while we were hitting the beach, thank God. But what was Hitler doing that time? He was just sleeping. Well, Patton converged on Berlin and the Russians converged from the east, and Hitler gathered with his mistress in a, in a bunker there in the pit of Berlin, and in a split second of time, he took his life. Now, you tell me, is that justice? Does a split-second gunshot wound or committing suicide with some, some kind of a cyanide, and nobody really knows exactly how Hitler met his end, but we do know that it ended there before our troops made it into Berlin. Does that really pay the bill? 
If you were one of those Jewish families who had your precious little two-year-old girl incinerated in the Holocaust of Auschwitz, would that be enough to pay the bill? And if I had a, a Jewish victim of those concentration camps here today, they would stand up right now and say, no, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. And that rises up in every one of you. And I want to share with you, that's why, that is why there's a hell. You know, in our culture today, we have decided that there isn't such a place called hell. In the modern world, when you read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, the idea is that Jonathan Edwards was some kind of a deranged pilgrim or Puritan, and he didn't really know what he was talking about, so we've kind of reinvented, you know, what hell must be. Hell isn't a real place. Hell's not a real place. It is a state of being. It's a state of being of those who choose willfully to reject the love and the grace of God. And there's truth in that. But what is to say, if you say, well, hell isn't a real place, that it's a state of being, you tell me, what is a state of being in eternity? Then we go on to Eden Theological Seminary, one of our major biblical, supposedly biblical seminaries. Let me read to you what Stephen J. Patterson of this seminary said about hell. Listen to this. Listen to this. He says that a literal hell is part of the understanding of the cosmos that just doesn't exist anymore. So what has Dr. Johnson decided? He's decided that hell is just not part of our reality in the modern world anymore. And so we just forget about it. You can kind of take a poll and you can decide where your beliefs about hell fit in with the general population. Now, I want to share something about the modern world. The modern world is incredibly arrogant. And you know what? Even when I talk about hell, some of you have already turned me off because you say all that we're going to have is another yelling, screaming, hellfire and damnation message. And it didn't make any sense to me when I was a kid. And so it's not going to make any sense to me now. In fact, I found out that the pastor ran off with his secretary and it was all a bunch of baloney anyway. So I reject that. Please don't do that. Because I want to share with you personally as a pastor, I don't know anything about hell in my own knowledge. I'm not an expert on hell. But I want to raise a very important issue to you. One of the things that I've learned in my life is that I don't decide by my own wishing, by my own thinking, what reality is. You see, I don't pretend what reality is. Like yesterday morning, we went out with Tim and Liz and myself. We went out and ran a 10K race. As we gathered at the, at the starting line, I have visions that I can win this race. <laughs> that I can actually, man, those guys from Azteca that are up there in the front in the freezing cold weather with their little bitty shorts on and their t-shirts running in this freezing weather with muscles rippling, I dreamt and dream that I can beat those guys. I even look at Liz and Tim and said, man, I think maybe I can stay up with them. Well, as the race proceeded, the Azteca guys, they were miles in this six-mile race. They were miles ahead of the whole field. And I've got news for you. My dreams and my visions don't put me ahead of them. In a million years, it just doesn't happen. I don't get to the finish line before those Azteca runners. 
It's just objective reality. And what I think in my head, what I dream about in my head, what I might believe is true is a bunch of baloney. I don't get there before Liz and Tim did. You see, they objectively run about eight-minute miles repeatedly, mile after mile after mile. I objectively run about a ten-minute mile, and that's what I do right now at my ripe old age. All the dreaming and all the pretending doesn't change that. Now, the modern world thinks that if Pope decides that hell's a different thing than it was in the past, and if, if a theologian from Eden Seminary says, we're going to just eliminate hell, I want to share with you because I love you, that doesn't make a blatt of difference about what hell is really like. Do you understand that? Do you understand that you objectively live in a world where you're probably not going to get off this planet alive unless the rapture takes place? And then if the rapture takes place, you might miss an opportunity. You see, the truth of the matter is that almost every single week, this week included, I stand in front of a group of people and we're putting someone into their eternal rest. And we all like to say, well, everything's going to turn out great in the end. How do you know? You see, the modern world has decided, well, we all believe in hell, but none of us are ever going to go there. None of us will ever face that. And what I want you to understand is just like my dreams and my visions of how fast I might be, don't change objective reality about my running. Your dreams and visions about what your eternal destiny might be aren't going to have a blatt of difference on where you end up. It doesn't make any difference what the Pope feels about hell, what theologians feel about hell. Really think seriously, because it's the most important journey you're ever going to go on. What does God say? What does God's word say about hell? And I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation 14, because we turn to Revelation chapter 14. One of the very first questions that we're really concerned about when we talk about hell is, what about all those people who have never heard? What about all those people who have never been able to have this precious biblical revelation? So they've, they've never heard this message. And so the issues raised when we talk about a biblical vision of hell, it couldn't possibly be true because, good night, so many people have never heard. Well, Revelation 14 tells us something really important about every single human being in the world. And right in the middle of the tribulation, when Antichrist is strutting his stuff, the Apostle John gives us a vision of things from a heavenly perspective, and the Apostle John shares with us about a universal good news that everybody has heard. And everybody's going to hear it in the tribulation period, but everybody's hearing it right now and throughout the world. Every Indian in the Amazon, every African in the deepest desert of Africa or the deepest jungles of Africa, you could go to the heart of China. There is nobody in all the world that can hear this universal good news. Look what the angel says in verse 6 of chapter 14 of Revelation. Look what it says. Then I saw another angel. Throughout the book, John has seen a vision of an angel. So God peels back the dichotomy between the spiritual eternal world and our present world. And he has an angelic messenger from God. Remember, these angels are God's servant. At God's servants, and they're working behind the scenes, and probably during their tribulation period, they work very much not behind the scenes, but right on the scene. John sees another angel flying in the midair. 
which gives us the impression that this is a universal revelation that's going to be given by this angel. He's right there where everybody can see him. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. This message that this angel is going to give out is a message that every single person on planet earth will hear and they can hear it today. In fact, John just multiplies every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. You get the idea. You want to say every single person on planet earth can hear this gospel. Now, what is a gospel? It is good news. So whatever this message is, there's a lot of debate in this passage about whether this is a message of judgment or whether it's a message of grace and good news. Well, the basic reality of the word gospel is that it always means good news. It's a message from God that if you receive it, if you respond to it, it leads to great blessing. Your heavenly father doesn't pull the rug out from underneath you. He cares about you. He wants the best for you. So whatever this angel is saying, it's got to start out with really good news. And it's a good news that's for every single person. You live on a planet where the ultimate being in the universe has revealed himself to the world. He has our best interest at heart. He has good news for us. He wants to bless us. You live on a planet that has been tenderly touched by the creator God. This planet is uniquely designed for you to live here. If you had been born on Mars, you would be long gone. You would have never made it out of the womb. You would have never come into reality because the environment there would have snuffed you out. But you didn't even think about it. Your mother and dad didn't even think about it. But you were born here in this planet. Man, the air is right. The sun's right. Most of the time, the temperature's right. You know, we're doing pretty good. I mean, this planet is an incredible gift to us from an eternal creator God that almost everybody in the modern world understands deep in their souls. There's got to be something that's bigger than us. As I think back over some of my agnostic, atheistic friends when I was in college, almost all of them have moved somewhere towards some kind of commitment to some great eternal being. You almost have to be an idiot to not come to that because of the planet we live in. So this angel is saying that we live, that there's a good news that's coming to us from the creator God and everybody can hear it. Now, what is it that everybody can hear? Look what he says. Reverence God, fear God, give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth and the sea and the springs of water. That is a universal message. Let me explain to you what the angel is saying. He's saying that every single person living during the tribulation period, and Psalm 19 that tells us the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament declares his handiwork. Day unto day, there is no place where their speech is not heard. Psalm 19 is telling us that today, that throughout the world, your unbelieving friends at school, your agnostic friends at the office, If you're sitting here wondering, like, who in the world God is, one of the things that you can understand about God is that you should reverence him. What do we mean by that, that you should reverence him? Is you should realize there's someone that's much bigger than you are. There's someone that's much smarter than you are. Just think about your own heart ticking away inside your chest. You don't give a thought to it, but just a few skips of beats, a little bit of stoppage, and you're a goner. So the most arrogant, prideful, self-sufficient person on the earth should be totally living in reverence 
in fear of this great one. The idea of the fear is, I mean, just think of the weather patterns that we've had over the last several days. Incredible changes. Can any of you orchestrate that? You know, we pray and we, and we, we need a little bit of moisture. And look at the way God gives it to us. Think of the incredible nature that we live in. What the scripture is saying is that when you look at the world that we're living in, that anybody that had a grain of sense would understand, man, something's happening here much bigger than some scientist. Something's happening here that's much bigger than some ecclesiastical priest or something like that. There's got to be a personal, almighty, powerful being that's out there that brought this all into being. Almost everyone knows that deep in their soul, and it should move them to reverence God. I want to ask you a question. Do the people that you rub shoulders with day in and day out, do they really reverence God? Do they really acknowledge God? I find that there's a lot of people that are into that haven't received Christ yet. They're just kind of out there. They don't give God a thought except when they're in really bad trouble. You know, they, they just think about themselves. They think about your plans. Some of you right now are thinking this week, what are your plans going to be? What are you going to do? How are you going to make it through? And you're just totally thinking in terms of yourself. That's the way I can be. We almost naturally just think in terms of our plans and what we're going to do. There's no reverence of God. What about giving him glory? This, the fact that there's this almighty creator and some hot and tight India way out there in the boggy dingoes of, of the deepest, most isolated part can get up in the morning and the sun comes up. And the sun makes its journey throughout the sky like Psalm 19 tells us. And God is saying day unto day, God is saying, I love you. I give you warmth. I take care of you. And the scripture is saying is that if that Indian will respond to that message of comfort and love, that God's going to give them more revelation. God's going to speak to them more. God's probably going to end up, as that heart keeps responding in reverence, God's going to bring them into the eternal message of the gospel, probably through some of you going and getting such a burden to bring the gospel to them. That's what the scripture is saying. So we begin with reverence. The second thing is we should give glory. Now think of it. It only makes sense if there's someone that's much bigger than us, someone that created this planet, that we ought to be moved to give praise to him. We ought to be moved to give thanks to him. Now think about the world that you live in. Who gets praised for things? Who gets thanked for things? You can think of your own society where you live, your own businesses, your own neighborhoods, where things divide right down the middle, deep inside all of our hearts. I want you to ask yourself this question. Who do I give glory to? Who am I proud about today? You see, we naturally give glory to ourselves and we focus on ourselves or we give glory to somebody that might be meeting our needs in ways that we think will help us to be able to get ahead and on and on it goes. But I find that there's a part of Dave Wurtzen that can go right by a worship time, go right by a time when I should really be giving glory to God and man, that's the farthest thing from my mind. So there's a part of me that knows I should reverence God but... Sometimes I don't even give him a thought. There's a part of me that knows I should give glory to him and give thanks to him and give him the praise. And there's a part of me that just lets that go right on by. Look what else it says that's an eternal gospel. He said in a loud voice, reverence God and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. Therefore, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea and the spring of water. I want to ask you a question. When God disciplines you, how do you respond? How many of you have ever met a person that when really bad things start happening in their life, they say this. If there's a God in heaven, 
that he must be the devil. And man, I'm just going to curse him because look at what's happening to me. You ever meet someone like that? One of the biggest problems for, for humanity is the issue of why is there suffering? If God is good, then why is there suffering? And either God is all-powerful, but he's not all-good, or he's all-good and he's not all-powerful. Because if he really was all-powerful, and if he really was good, then there would be no suffering. And so we arrogantly say, that does away with the God of the Bible. He's out of here. Because he must be bad. And I want you to stop and think about it. We've concluded God must be bad. Which means that we've forgotten that. If we're going to say that God is bad and God doesn't do what we want him to do and we're going to be really ticked off about him, what's the criterion by which we make that judgment? You ever stop and think about that? How can you decide, how can I decide what's good or not? How can I decide what's right or not? You see the arrogance in even making the judgment, yet there's a part of me that when I'm under the discipline of God, when I'm under the judgment of God, and God's seeking to work in our heart, we respond to judgment by getting more arrogant and more angry. Some of the kids, some of the teenagers right now this morning are under discipline of their mom and dad. They're grounded, horrors. They really blew it. The truth of the matter is their parents only caught them for just about a tenth of what they've really been doing. (laughs) But there's some of our young people that feel in their heart, man, I can hardly wait to get out of here. I can hardly wait till I get graduated. I can hardly wait till I get out from underneath my parents. Man, then I can do my own thing. I can do what I want to do. What is that? It's anger. Anger against your parents. Now, how many of you think in the objectivity of Sunday morning, how many of you think that's really a great way to make decisions? Man, that is a way to be rebellious against your parents. That is a great way to really become skillful and wise and to get out there into the big world and really be successful. Yet we all smile. Yet the truth of the matter is that can be patterns in our own life. It starts out when we're young. It's a pattern we have with God. There's some of you right here. The truth of the matter is you're just ticked off at God. You're angry at God because God brought judgment into your life. Maybe some consequence. You see, sometimes God does discipline us. In the modern world, we've decided that God's kind of like George Burns and, you know, talking with John Denver and he smokes cigars and tells dirty jokes and everybody's going to be happy in the end and it'll be kind of like a gracious, perverted Santa Claus or something. But that's not what the God of the universe really is. The God of the universe is awesome in his righteousness. Don't, don't take for granted when God begins to speak to your heart. And don't think that God is some pushover. Don't think, you know, one of the things that horrifies me about the body of Christ right now, even among believers, there can be believers that actually read this book and actually get instruction from the book, know exactly what the book says they should do, and they willfully say, I'm not going to do that. And they all feel like there's not going to be any consequences at all. And I got news for you. Just stop and think. Nothing in life works like that. When I was in chemistry, when my chemist that was teaching me told me that you could not put nitrobenzene all over your skin. And then if you did, it would infiltrate your bloodstream and it could knock out your immune system and you could get deathly sick. You know, I didn't go into the lab and and purposely bust a bottle and just coat myself in this stuff to prove I can do my own thing. 
Man, the guy was telling me, this is serious stuff. This is the way chemistry works. Nitrobenzene is pretty poignant stuff. Be careful how you use it. And I was idiot enough to kick a, a liter full of it and spill it all over the place and smell up the whole lab for weeks and end. It's what makes shoe polish smell terrible. And I was ignorant. I didn't even know how bad this stuff was until several weeks later when I found out about it. But God is really gracious. God tells us most of the time in his word. I see a lot of people who deep in their soul, they really know what's right. They know that the attitudes stink. They know that it's just not the way to go. And yet they're still plodding ahead, doing their own thing. God will not be mocked. The modern world can decide whatever they want to about God, but the real God, the God that's really there, will consistently do his thing. You know what God is saying? You know what the good news is? When the judgment comes, when the judgment comes, the right response is to run to him. Have you ever come to that moment of truth deep in your soul when you know that you have blown it? You know that you have sinned, and you know that you deserve to be punished. Instead of running toward God, your father, you might have run away from him. Adam and Eve did it, and all of us are sons and daughters of this original pair. The tragedy is that our Heavenly Father loves us even though we have rebelled against him. He gave his only son to take our penalty. He offers to declare us not guilty based on his son's incredible gift. You will need to turn your back on your sin and open your heart to receive the gift of new life in Christ. Why not bow your head as we close this program? Why not open your heart to him and ask the Lord Jesus to forgive your sin and receive him into your life?